Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news and Hoosier law. Brought to you by Taft. I'm Jordan Morey, Managing Editor of Indiana Lawyer and your host. Thanks for joining us. Summer is winding down, but the news cycle is still going strong, so we have lots to cover in this week's headlines. Plus, stick around after this week's news updates to hear our conversation with Joe Skeel, the Executive Director of the Indiana State Bar Association. Let's get started. Today is Wednesday, September 7th, 2022, and these are your headlines. To start us off, I'm going to hand it over to Indiana Lawyer Editor Olivia Covington for some big news from the world of law firm combinations. Olivia? On September 4th, Taft's Detinius & Hollister LLP, one of the largest law firms in Indianapolis, announced a combination with Detroit law firm Jaffe, Rate, Hewer & Weiss. The combination will be effective on December 31st. The Jaffe combination will give Taft Law a footprint in Michigan and will add more than 120 attorneys to its bench. The combination also puts Taft in seven of the nine largest Midwest metropolitan markets, including Detroit, which is the second largest metro market in the Midwest. Founded in 1968, Jaffe is currently the seventh largest law firm in the Detroit metro area, offering services in more than 25 practice areas. When the combination was announced, Taft chairman and managing partner Bob Hicks released a statement saying, quote, By combining with Jaffe, we welcome a cohesive, talented, and experienced group of attorneys and staff to our team, offering expanded expertise to clients. As in all of our mergers, we also look forward to continuing to support the Detroit regional community, united in our commitment to engage with our communities, a shared value among our firms, end quote. Taft describes its structure as an innovative non-headquarter model, which allows individual offices to operate under local leadership while providing access to resources across multiple practice areas. To that end, once this combination is complete, Jaffe's current leadership team will continue to lead and make Detroit-specific decisions while also stepping into firm-wide leadership roles across Taft. Taft says it has grown its attorney headcount by more than 85% in just the last five years and has completed five mergers and combinations over the last 15 years, including with Summer Barnard in 2008 in Indianapolis. Once the Jaffe combination is complete, Taft will be comprised of more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and Washington, D.C. I'll send it back to Jordan now to tell you how you can learn more about the details of this combination. Indiana Lawyer Senior Reporter Marilyn Odendahl will have an in-depth look at the combination and how it fits in with the national market in our next issue. Be sure to pick up the September 14th edition of Indiana Lawyer to read her coverage. Next, an update to another story Marilyn has been following. This one involving a dispute between the Archdiocese of Indianapolis and an Indianapolis Catholic High School. On August 31st, the Indiana Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Archdiocese over Joshua Payne Elliott a former teacher at Cathedral High School who was fired in 2019 for being in a same-sex marriage. The justices ruled that the church autonomy doctrine prohibits the state from interfering in, quote, matters of church government as well as those of faith and doctrine, end quote. That's very similar to the ruling the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals reached earlier this summer when it determined that the archdiocese was protected from an employment discrimination lawsuit filed by Lynn Starkey who was fired from her job at Roncalli High School for being in a same-sex marriage. The Seventh Circuit relied on the ministerial exception to reach that decision. While two separate courts have reached the same conclusion in two separate cases, there is still a third similar case pending. 
an employment discrimination case filed by Shelley Fitzgerald, who, like Starkey, was fired from Roncalli for being in a same-sex marriage. Fitzgerald's case is currently pending in the Indiana Southern District Court, which is considering the Archdiocese's motion to dismiss based on the ministerial exception. The Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, which is representing the Archdiocese in all three cases, has praised the court rulings, saying the Indiana Supreme Court, quote, protected all religious institutions to be free from government interference in deciding their core religious values, end quote. But attorneys for the teacher plaintiffs in each case are lamenting the rulings, with one attorney saying that the Indiana Supreme Court is, quote, moving toward immunity from civil liability for religious institutions that discriminate against their employees, end quote. Payne Elliott's case was dismissed without prejudice, leaving open the possibility for it to be resurrected. His legal team says it's evaluating its options for what it could do next. We'll keep you updated as these cases progress. In other Indiana Supreme Court news, the justices recently handed down an opinion that will be especially important for criminal defense attorneys. In the August 23rd decision in Mingus v. State, the justices overruled longtime precedent that protected police reports by the work product doctrine. That precedent, which was established in 1985 in Keaton v. Circuit Court of Rush County, was based on the previous process of redacting police reports using a marker. But now, with technological advancements and changes to Indiana's trial rules, the justices determined the Keaton decision could no longer stand. They stressed, though, that just because the blanket work product protection no longer applies to all police reports, that doesn't mean the protection can't apply in some cases. You can read the full decision on our website. One last thing from the Indiana Supreme Court. There's now a new justice in town. On September 1st, Derek Moulter was officially sworn in as the 111th Justice of the Indiana Supreme Court in a private ceremony. One day earlier, Justice Stephen David retired from the high court bench after serving there since 2010. We know that in our last episode, we told you that we'd have interviews with Moulter and David in the August 31st issue of Indiana Lawyer, but as I'm sure you know from your own practices, sometimes plans change. So now we'll have those interviews in next week's issue of Indiana Lawyer, which comes out on September 14th. I chatted with Justice Moulter about his rapid rise to the state's highest court, while Indiana lawyer reporter Katie Stancomb talks with Justice David about his long career. Be sure to pick up the next issue of Indiana Lawyer to read our stories. Speaking of Katie, let's kick it over to her for a report on a new addiction treatment facility opening soon in Huntington County. After more than two years of planning, a near-century-old convent will avoid the wrecking ball and be transformed into a new addiction recovery center for inmates in Huntington County. Huntington Community Corrections is reimagining its approach to addiction recovery through the county's first treatment-focused recovery and work-release residential center. Historically known as Victory Knoll, the massive campus will now be called the O'Donnell Center. The center, which already houses the Community Corrections Office and offices for Parkview Behavioral Health, will provide defendants who are struggling with drug addictions the chance to participate in substance abuse rehabilitation. That's not something that Huntington County Jail currently offers, according to the Huntington Superior Court Judge, Jennifer Newton. She says the center is much needed. For someone, a defendant to go there, either myself or the other judge in circuit court will have to sentence someone to work release. They'll be screened by community corrections, and there are certain offenders that we won't allow to go there, such as violent offenders. As of now, only male inmates will be permitted to reside at the center. Newton says that the center would be a low-security facility with 30 rooms that can sleep up to four people each. 
It's scheduled to open in late September and provide a safe place for healing and to provide work release education. We want to hopefully give them the tools while they're doing their sentence on work release to become productive members of society and they can't get those tools in jail. Newton says that like many other Indiana judges, her court is flooded with litigants suffering from underlying mental health issues. Her dream is to incorporate mental health treatment at the center, but that will take time. I believe almost everyone who has a substance abuse issue, there's some element of a mental health issue that needs to be addressed. Because we don't have any place near us that does any type of mental health treatment. On October 21st, the Office of Court Services of the Indiana Supreme Court will host a Behavioral Health Summit in Indianapolis, drawing in groups of judicial officers and related criminal justice teams from all 92 Indiana counties to brainstorm and discuss how to address the mental health crisis in the state. It's a real problem. I mean, it's definitely a huge problem. Stay tuned at theindianalawyer.com for continued coverage on the upcoming Behavioral Health Summit. Back to you, Jordan. Thanks, Katie. Let's wrap up today's headlines with a topic we've been reporting on all summer long, abortion. As we've told you before, Indiana's new near-total abortion ban is set to take effect next week on September 15th. As a reminder, the new law bans abortions except in cases of rape or incest before 10 weeks post-fertilization to protect the life or physical health of the mother or if there is a diagnosis of a lethal fetal anomaly. In an unsurprising move, the ACLU of Indiana and Planned Parenthood filed a lawsuit on August 30th to stop the law from taking effect. Filed in Monroe Circuit Court, the complaint alleges the abortion ban violates the right to privacy established in the Indiana Constitution. Ken Falk, the legal director of the ACLU of Indiana, released a statement saying, quote, Deeply private, personal, and unique decisions about reproductive health should be made by women in consultation with their doctors. Whether Indiana elected officials personally agree with abortion access or not, it is not up to the government to make these decisions for Hoosiers, end quote. But Indiana Attorney General Todd Rakita said in a recent press release that the Indiana Constitution says nothing about the right to an abortion. Rakita's office is tasked with defending the law, although he added that personally he does not support any exceptions to an abortion ban. At our deadline, no major rulings have been handed down in the case. We'll keep a close eye on it between now and September 15th and let you know how the judge ultimately rules. All right, that'll do it for this week's headlines. Head over to theindianalawyer.com for more on these stories or any other news from the Hoosier legal community. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear Olivia and I chat with Joe Skeel, Executive Director of the ISBA. Taft. Today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, we have Joe Skeel, Executive Director of the Indiana State Bar Association, in studio with us today. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. As Executive Director of ISBA, Skeel specializes in strategic planning, team building, budgeting, and board management. 
He also helps oversee membership, event planning, publications, communications, scholarship programs, and contests, among many other things, I'm sure. Prior to joining ISBA in 2017, Skill served as executive director of the Society of Professional Journalists, the nation's largest and most broad-based member association for journalists. Uh, during that time, he also served as executive director of the Sigma Delta Chi Foundation, the society's supporting charity. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Joe is also a former journalist who, like Olivia and I, both worked at the Republic Daily Newspaper in Columbus, Indiana. Yep. <laughs> so we have three Republic alums here today. <laughs> Joe, with an extensive journalism background, uh, you know, how and why did you pivot to the law? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I think the thing that drew me to the State Bar Association really at its core were the the people. Uh, and I have found that attorneys and journalists are very similar at their core. And people choose those professions really out of a desire to make their communities better. You know, sometimes they've witnessed something or seen something or experienced something that kind of drives that passion a little bit. So the notion that journalists are very similar to lawyers, I think, made the when I was contemplating, you know, is this something I'd be interested in trying to do? It made it very easy to see how it might all play out. Uh, and, and for the reasons as to why, you know, leave the journalism realm and, and go into law, uh, I think it's a lot of a lot of soul searching that I think a lot of people are doing now, right, during the great resignation, great reassessment, whatever you want to call it. Mine just happened to occur back in the early 2000s. And I had been doing, you know, in journalism since I graduated college. Uh, I was at SPJ for about 13 years. And I really just thought, what's next and where do I go? Uh, and so I started thinking about what my future was going to be. And I started just kind of looking. I actually wasn't looking actively, seriously to leave, but I was just wondering what what's out there. Um, and so that was really the first time I started thinking about anything after journalism. When I saw this, I thought, wow, like they they want what I already have proven I can do and what I enjoy doing. And it's the people are very similar. It just it really seemed natural, to be honest. I've made that observation myself that lawyers and journalists, there's something about us that's there's an overlap somehow. Yeah. yeah. So let's shift to the ISBA itself. So last year, um, of course, you know, you rolled out the new strategic plan, which focused a lot on member feedback. So tell us about kind of implementing that and what kind of response you've gotten. Yeah, it's, it's great. So it's hard to gauge response. Um, individually, one-on-one, -on -one, um, people, you know, seem to like some of the things that we're doing. But I don't think there's a member out there that would be able to say, oh, I think the State Bar Strategic Plan is going really well, because they see bits and pieces of it, right, that we roll out. Internally, I would say it's going really, really well. And the way that we kind of manage that is each staff person is responsible for a certain tactic or a certain element. Uh, and we meet pretty much uh, once a week uh, on various pillars of the strategic plan. There's four, uh, education, advocacy, connecting sections and connections is what we call it because a lot of people get their activity, and then diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we have different staff members responsible for driving all of those things. And so through some specific um, things that we're doing as a result of the strategic plan, I think it's really it's it's really improved things. And I think members are seeing it and noticing it. I can give you a, a very specific example of kind of one one little way in that we're doing this. Um, and so through our diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives, really, it comes down to being intentional about, you know, who who is at the table, uh, who's not at the table, and let's get everybody at the table. And so literally, we, we do a, an annual etiquette event 
for law students at Maurer McKinney and then also at Notre Dame. And in fact, we're doing one in Notre Dame um, this week uh, in which it's now part of their, their first week orientation. So we're gonna have an etiquette dinner for 160 uh, students and the program at its core teaches them how to use the proper fork, right? Which cup is mine? Where's my bread plate? That's kind of the the purpose of it. But in reality, the real value is with the state bar's involvement is we help Notre Dame organize that and we bring professionals to the table. So we have professionals sitting at every single table along with the students. And we were intentional about ensuring that at every table we have an attorney of color. Um, so it's really important that attorneys, young attorneys, prospective attorneys see people like them, but it's equally important that attorneys see people not like them, right? And, and really learn to understand there's differences. We're all the same, but there's differences. And so that's just one little bitty example of how a DEI initiative in our strategic plan is actually playing out. Uh, what are membership numbers like this year? And how has it kind of changed over the last few years with COVID, you know, going from in person to everything going virtual? And now we have a hybrid almost kind of environment. Yeah. So the state bars numbers, I'd say are steady, um, which is it, which is it's this kind of pains me to say, but the truth is, which is good. Um, I was just at a conference last week where they were talking about, you know, the legal profession numbers are actually on the rise. One to three percent uh, is the trend. Uh, and that they didn't define legal profession to me. So I'm not exactly sure all, what all that encompasses. But voluntary bar association membership has been on the decline about one to six percent. Uh, and the state bar is holding steady. So a couple of years we actually increased and we were up uh, last year. I think we were down by like. 0.05%. Um, so we're we're right there. I like to, when staff and I talk about it, we like to say, we feel like we're at the bottom of the U because we were on a steady decline for a while. Um, we've been able to reverse that. And I think that's part of that is also a result of just being intentional about really how do we provide member value? Let's talk to our members, let's figure it out, and then let's do it. Uh, and so I think that's been the reason that we've started to see this turn. Talk to us about events. Anything new in 2022? I know we're more than halfway through, so we can go back in the year if you want to. But, you know, um, not just events, but how you've had to accommodate COVID and, you know, going forward. Yeah, the events world is crazy right now. Uh, and not just for bar associations, obviously, but for everybody and really trying to figure out that whole virtual piece and in person and when should something be hybrid, if ever? And so one of the things we did, it was also in our strategic plan, was we we just, we developed a, a metric system. It's a rubric where we basically just ask ourselves questions. And when we get to the end of the road, the answers to those questions basically dictate if it should be virtual or in person and and, and in occasion, on an occasion hybrid. Uh, and so we, we let the question or the answers to those questions kind of tell us. But what I would say, generally speaking, is the vast majority of the things that we do now now, um, we think virtual first and digital first. A lot of our activity, when you talk about events, it's a broad range for us. When we have section meetings and committees get together to meet, you know, if, if they can do business, business in an hour, it's not realistic to expect people to drive from the corners of the state to come to Indianapolis for an hour meeting. So our, our group, our volunteers have really embraced meeting virtually. And in fact, now what we're seeing is when we do things in person, we're actually getting a lot of requests to do things virtually. But we have a line um, and we do believe that there is huge value in in-person gathering. And so what we are now challenging ourselves with is that if we're going to do an in-person event and, and volunteers think something should be in person, we really have to make it worth their while, right, for them to come 
come in. And so what does that look like? Uh, and so those are the things now we're experimenting with. What does that look like? And I think another piece that goes into that when you talk about the great reassessment and the great resignation and the work-life balance, that's it's super important to, uh, with a broad brush here, right, with the millennials and the younger generation, that work-life balance really drives a lot of their decisions. And so for us to ask them to come and give up time outside of their work hours, it has to be something really unique and special. And so, but what is that? And for each person, it's very different. And so those are the things we're actually in the process of figuring out. But I would say generally we're doing a pretty much the same amount of events, um, whether they're virtual, whether they're in person might be a little different. Uh, one thing I can say is we are bullish on the fact that hybrids are not good. Mm. Um, they're really hard to execute. They're generally more expensive. And now you're trying to do one thing that appeases two different audiences and two different sets of ex expectations. So um, the natural inclination, I think, of attendees and volunteers is, well, can you do a hybrid? But the reality is that actually doesn't work for most people very mm, well. That's interesting. Yeah. What about the annual meeting? Is that coming up soon? It is. What can you tell us? <laughs> yeah, October uh, 14th. Uh, that'll be at the Alexander downtown Indianapolis. And this will be the second year uh, of a, I guess I would say a pilot. The board voted a couple of years ago. Our board of governors voted a couple of years ago to really rethink what is this annual summit and, and annual meeting and and what is the purpose and what is the goal. And it used to be that mindset was, and it, and it was probably true, um, we really need to have a lot of educational component, a lot of CLE to get some, to get attorneys there and, and to allow some justification for firms to send their folks to the annual meeting. And, and what we learned over time was it was the same people coming, whether, you know, it didn't matter. And so what we really have, have, have turned this event into is it's a really, it's instead of three days, it's one. Uh, it's the House of Delegates meeting where we will have delegates from all across the state come in and talk about important issues. We're still working to finalize that agenda. Uh, and then we have the annual business meeting, which is required that the association have an annual business meeting. And that's where we induct our new president. And then we'll have a reception afterward. But it's it's the second year of the pilot of not having CLE. Our attendance last year was the same as it was the previous year when we did have CLE. Um, so no noticeable drop off in the folks who like the numbers of people. That is one of the rare instances where we have a hybrid option. So we do have a virtual component for our House of Delegates. But the purpose really is to come together and talk about issues that are important to the legal profession. And so last year, as an example, you know, we had a presentation from the court. The court came and, and represented from the family law task force that they have through the innovation. They have an innovation task force. So Judge Tavides came on behalf of the family law task force and Steve Badger, an, a, a longtime state bar supporter member, um, huge volunteer. He heads up a civil litigation task force and they came and talked about here are the things we're going to propose that the court change. How do we as attorneys in the state feel about it? Uh, and so that discussion took place. And so that's the type of stuff that we're going to be looking to do. You know, I, I talked to when they made the change for CLE and doing it, you can do it all virtually now and that kind of thing. They said, you know, uh, a couple of lawyers said, my inbox is just flooded with all of these different, you know, CLEs that are available to me from all these different organizations. So, you know, why should lawyers go to ISBA maybe <laughs> instead of somewhere else when they have so many options? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think the, so the first thing I would just say is let's just talk about the, the probably the big the big deciding factor is cost right so when people are getting flooded and they're trying to figure out how am i going to pay for this or am i going to pay for that the beauty of the way the state bar operates is we actually don't view CLE as a big source of non-dues revenue and so we include enough for every attorney to get their annual requirement and their 3 year requirement it's free with membership so and and now you can get it all online um, and so that's all included with the cost of membership. So if, if an attorney is saying, why should I go to the state bar to get CLE? 
the obvious answer is, well, it's included with my membership and I don't have to pay extra. But beyond that, I think what really sets apart um, most of our CLE from from other folks is we are a network of attorneys from around the state. And so we believe strongly in peer education. We have experts among our ranks. And so being the State Bar Association, we can tap into experts who happen to be in Allen County or in Evansville or in Lake County or you know, Tippecanoe County, wherever. Um, and, and because we have a statewide network in our sections and in our committees, when a topic comes up or an issue comes up or we're talking about a national trend that may sometime come to Indiana, it's not hard for us to find experts within our ranks. And I think having that statewide reach really improves the value of the education that we can provide because of the network that we have. And then also because we're a state bar, I have really close contacts with state bar associations across the country. And so as these things come up, it's very easy for me to pick up the phone or send an email and, and to, to another state bar exec and say, are you dealing with this? Do you have experts? You know, Can you help us? So those would be the two big reasons, quality and it just makes sense financially. Kind of piggybacking right off of that, can you tell us kind of more about the collaboration between, you know, different geographic bar groups or the affinity bar groups? And there's so many. So, you know, how there do you are. work with all of those? I would be, I'll be honest and say, I don't think it's very good right now um, for on our standpoint. For, uh, we're getting started. We're being more intentional about it. We have good relationships um, with the Lake Bar, Lake County Bar and Evansville and, you know, Indy Bar uh, and even Allen County. So I have good relationships with their executive directors. But I think there's still, in some respects, the idea of where where can we partner in a way that makes sense? Uh, and one of the challenges is is a lot of it is just tied to business models. And so, for example, Metro bars, um, and I'm not sure this is the case for Indianapolis, but I know it's the case um, for other bars. CLE is a huge driver um, as a source of their revenue. And so when we talk about how do we partner, the natural inclination is through education. Uh, and that can be really challenging and difficult to figure that out. But where it has worked really well, and I think this might be you know where it makes more sense in the future, is, is on advocacy efforts. And so, for example, there was a, a bill moving through the state house recently about how the judicial nomination process would work with Lake County and St. Joe County. And as the state bar, we have, you know, we have uh, people in the state house doing that work and the local bars don't. Um, they have volunteers, they have members who are impacted and they have members who are involved in the process, but really they don't have somebody who can be at the state house all the time. And so that was a great example of where we did collaborate. Um, and then also as part of our strategic plan initiative, we're really being intentional about uh, making sure that we are um, proactive in reaching out to all of the other affinity bars, um, specifically those, you know, Marion County Bar, Kimbrough Bar Association, Lozano Bar Association, APABA, all of those groups, because we want to make sure that they at our table, um, helping us make smart decisions that are good for all attorneys in the state. So I think when I said earlier, it's not very good. Um, I think we're at the beginning uh, or close to the beginning. And I think we have a lot of room to improve. And I think we will. I think we are. Are there any national trends? I know you said you speak, you speak with a lot of other bar associations, but um, you know, are there any other trends that people might not be aware of uh, happening in, in bar associations across other states as well? Yeah, I think that when you say that people might not be aware of, I don't know if people aren't aware of these. Uh, but what I will say, what seems to be top of mind when I talk to people, obviously, number one right now at this point in time is workforce issues. Um, and you can define that however you want. But uh, the idea that there's not enough attorneys, specifically in rural communities, that is a national problem. It's you know rural flight. Uh, young attorneys are gravitating toward urban areas, which leaves rural communities, you know, with service deserts. And it's not just 
um, it's it's not just attorneys, it's service industries, period. I talk with um, the executive director of the Indiana Veterinarian Association, same problem. They're having a hard time with young vets going into rural communities. And a lot of their, that is driven by student loan debt. And so when you talk about what is the problem, well, workforce issues, student loan debt's a huge issue because young attorneys have to take jobs in places that pay them enough to pay off their student loans and actually live. And oftentimes that may not be in a rural setting. So student loan debt is a huge issue, I think, for the profession, and it has to be figured out. Uh, I th- and, and also not just rural areas, but when you talk about student loan debt, attorneys' abilities to take jobs that don't pay as well. So now you're talking about the government sector, right? And so that's a challenge across the country. And because of, I would say that another challenge, I guess, is access issues. And so courts across the country are really trying to figure out how to handle just the, the crush of pro se litigants and what does that look like? And then also there's the equity piece that's tied to that access issue. And so there are a lot of states experimenting with how to solve that how to solve that problem. Some states are adopting um, legal licensed technician programs. Really, it's the nurse practitioner model. Um, so giving some folks a little bit more authority than what a paralegal in Indiana might have, but not quite the authority that attorney would have. What does that look like? And there are several states that are changing rules and implementing that. Some states have allowed now non-lawyer ownership. Um, and so how does that work and what does that look like? Now, what I can say is um, I sit on three commissions that the court uh, has. None of those, the the nurse practitioner model nor the non-legal or non-lawyer ownership issues, neither one of those have been prevented, presented as a possible solution here in Indiana. So I don't think it's on, it's certainly not on the doorstep. Um, here. But other states are are experimenting with it. And I have to believe our court is smart. And I have to believe they're watching what other states are doing in terms of providing these solutions. And if something works somewhere and something gains steam, um, I think it's their responsibility to consider it and look at it. So my job as executive director and our job as the State Bar Association is to really be surveying the landscape, what is around the curve, what may come. Um, and then if it does, be prepared to have those conversations at our House of Delegates meeting sure. or in other ways. So I would say those national trends really are figuring out access issues, student loan debt, rural rural flight is a problem. And just right now, the overall workforce issues of generational differences in many respects, which has kind of been sped up by the COVID experiment or the COVID problem. So uh, all of those things. Kind of maybe bringing together all these different things we've talked about. You know, what's your elevator pitch for a young lawyer to say, here's the benefit we provide. This is why you should join the ISBA. Yeah, elevator pitch. So the thing that, not that I would tell them this, but what I will tell you this and the listeners this is at the state bar, we don't view ourselves to be in the recruitment business. So we're in the retention business. And if we do things right, um, because every law student in the state of Indiana is a member of the state bar association. And so as they're going through law school, when they graduate, when they pass the bar, our goal really is to be there for them on their journey um, from beginning to end. And our goal is if we can help transform their career and their lives in some way, that's what we're trying to do. For some people, that's helping them find a job. For some people, that's helping them find a work-life balance. For some people, it's business referral. It's different for everyone. And so for us to say, we do this or we do that, we'd be selling a huge number of our members short. But just as broadly as possible, we want to help attorneys on their journey. Uh, and we want to be ahead of the curve before they get there so that we can help them when they get there. And so really, that's what we do. And we do it through a variety of ways. Uh, this is a long elevator ride, by the way. <laughs> but education, connecting them with other attorneys, right? And so we have a lot of ways that really, at the end of the day, we can help them on their journey. And that's our goal. 
That'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks again to ISBA Executive Director Joe Skeel for joining us. As always, you can listen to previous episodes of The Indiana Lawyer Podcast on theindianalawyer.com or via your favorite streaming service.